Kia Ora from Victoria University of Wellington. Our podcast gives you the chance to catch up with our academics and guest speakers who lead thinking on the big questions facing society. Victoria University of Wellington. Capital thinking, globally minded. Good evening to everyone. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me uh, to come and speak here tonight. It is a great honour. Uh, I have a particular affection uh, for New Zealand, as I was explaining to you a few minutes ago, uh, not least because you kidnapped my eldest daughter uh, and don't look like giving her back to me anytime soon. Um, so there is a perception um, that global capitalism is in crisis. Um, and there are a number of drivers for that view, whether it's right or whether it's wrong. Uh, one of them, though, is the globalization of the economy that we've seen uh, over the last few decades. And globalization has brought many benefits to society, and particularly for consumers. Uh, but there is no doubt that it's also had its downside. Uh, and one of those has been that particularly multinationals, have tended to become divorced from the communities in which they operate. And there's also a perception that perhaps globalization has contributed to increasing uh, inequality in our society. So I'm not here tonight to issue a clarion call for you to go and man the barricades. Um, but what I hope I might do um, is stimulate some thoughts about how businesses can operate in a way adopting a well-being framework that will deliver benefits not just for their employees and their shareholders but also for the societies in which they operate. Now there are a few advantages to being old um, but I suppose one of the few that do exist is that it, it gives you a bit of a uh, an historical perspective. Uh, and there's no doubt that the world of work is changing and has changed an awful lot since I started uh, a real job almost 40 years ago when released from hospitals uh, and discovering the, the real world of work out there. My first uh, job outside of hospitals was in a shipyard um, and uh, that then, um, even more so than now, was a particularly hazardous, noisy, dirty uh, environment. And many jobs back in the mid-70s uh, were physically arduous. Um, there were lots of physical hazards that needed to be managed. And what we've seen in the succeeding period is that a lot of those hazards have been engineered out. And work has changed so that it's perhaps less physically arduous but it's arguably more mentally arduous. And the physical hazards have often been replaced by psychological hazards. Work has changed too, in that 40 years ago, one would talk about going to work, and what that meant was um, a trip to a geographical point. These days, when one says one's going to work, it's not using work as a noun, it's using work as a verb. Uh, and Many people can work, as in the picture, uh, from the beach or from their homes or from various other places. And as we look at the way that the world of work is developing, that's going to be an increasing uh, phenomenon. And that has potentially 
uh, a lot of advantages. But whereas when work was a physical location, one had set hours, you'd go in, you'd do your work, you'd come home, you'd live the rest of your life, what we're increasingly seeing is an expectation for 24-7 working which brings its own pressures with it. There's also been a shift in the relationship between employer and employee. Um, going back to that same time, what one would expect in joining a company is that you'd be there for a very long time, perhaps for life, ending up with that nice gold watch uh, and a, uh, a pension, uh, a final salary pension. Um, that is rarely the case these days. Uh, these days, it's more that you will join a particular organization for a relatively short period of time, um, and you'll make your own arrangements with regards to how you're going to support yourself in retirement. The employer might contribute to that, but it's by no means uh, as certain as it used to be in those days. The world of health is changing too. Uh, what we're seeing around the world is uh, an increase in life expectancy. And that isn't just in developed countries, it's in developing countries too. And even in Eastern Europe, where for a long time uh, life expectancy was flat or even declining um, since the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, we're seeing a rise in life expectancy uh, in that area too. But what we're seeing in parallel with that, and partly as a consequence of that, is a rise in chronic disease. And because of the advances that we have seen in the last few decades in the control of infectious diseases, the things that are now giving rise to mortality in our populations are things like heart disease, cancer, um, diabetes, and mental health issues have also risen up significantly. And what that means is that in the world of work, we're seeing people who are um, living with and working with chronic diseases, which perhaps in the past might have killed them, uh, but now they have that as a potentially impaired impairment to their capability. Lifestyle factors are a major contribution uh, to those chronic diseases. Um, and what we're seeing is that poor worker health is impacting on businesses, on their profitability, and their ability to deliver products and services for their customers. So businesses are getting more interested in health, and we're seeing a shift from a focus predominantly on safety to one which is predominantly on health. Demographics are accelerating that trend. So we've seen increasing life expectancy. We're also seeing um, an increase in the age of people at work. And there are various things driving that. Uh, the graph there is New Zealand statistics, uh, which you might find a little bit scary, uh, in that um, as of now, the general expectation is that people will retire from paid work uh, somewhere in the sort of 60 to 65 uh, age group. The prediction from your Office for National Statistics um, is that um, by 2060-ish, um, there will be 20% of 80-year-olds still engaged in active employment. <laughs> there are some already. Uh, there are various things driving that. Um, 
like most things in our society, baby boomers are guilty. I know that. Uh, I am one. Um, I personally drown polar bears uh, every few weeks just to demonstrate what a bad person I am. Uh, baby, bo baby boomers are responsible for many of the world's uh, ills. But what we're seeing is because of that demographic bulge, um, pensions are becoming unaffordable. Uh, retirement is becoming unaffordable for an awful lot of people. We're seeing an ageing workforce in my own company. Uh, the average age in many of our divisions now uh, is in the mid-50s, and this is people doing largely manual work, and I'm told that the same is true here in New Zealand. David Bloom, uh, who is a health economist, a uh, good friend from Harvard, did a nice bit of work recently uh, looking at the economic costs of that global burden of disease. Uh, and what you see there on the pie chart is his estimate uh, of what those chronic diseases will be costing the economy. And if you add those numbers up, they come to 40, around 45 trillion US dollars. Now, I can't even visualize 45 trillion US dollars. Someone will do the maths and tell me it's 46, I'm sure. Um, but it's around 45. Uh, and it's all being driven by those chronic diseases. So what we have is a global economic health crisis. And employers can't ignore that. They have to take account of that because it's affecting their businesses. And work itself is adding to that burden. If we go back um, 15 years ago in my company, um, probably 80% of the costs of health and safety related to work injuries, 20% uh, related to work-related ill health. That's turned around in our company, and it's now 80% work-related ill health, 20% injury. This is data. The circle there is from the UK Health and Safety Executive. Um, showing uh, for UK national data uh, that work-related ill health is costing about twice the cost of work-related injuries. The, injury, the, the ill health that is contributing to that, uh, the two big ones there are musculoskeletal disorders uh, and mental health problems. And what we're seeing as work is transforming is that in more and more industrial sectors, it's mental health which is giving rise to those costs to uh, society, costs to business, uh, and musculoskeletal tend to be, they're still there, still very significant, but they're diminishing in importance. In the past, a lot of those hazards would have been related to the activity that you were doing at work. So the fumes that you breathed in uh, as a welder, uh, the problems from vibration that you experienced if you were digging up the roads. What we're seeing increasingly, it's not the activity that you're undertaking, it's the work environment, it's the way that work is organized, uh, and it's that work-life interface that's causing those psychological hazards and those mental health problems that can arise as a result of that. So what that gives us is a two-way dynamic between work and health. So bad work harms health, uh, and we've known that since Paracelsus and others back in the, the Middle Ages. Um, bad health harms work. If you have an unhealthy workforce, then your workforce is less productive. 
But on the good side, good work improves health. And there's a wealth of evidence now to show that being in employment confers an awful lot of health benefits over and above those that you would get just from the income related to being in work. And good health also improves the quality uh, of people's output. So it doesn't just increase the amount of work that they're capable of doing, their productivity, it also improves the quality of the work that they're doing. So what one needs to do is look both at the individual, which is what we tend to do, but also to look at the organisation and the way that that is interacting with the individual's health. Health is only part of the story, which is why we increasingly talk about well-being, which means rather more, as I'll explain in a minute, than just health. Uh, the diagram there is from a piece of work uh, done by David McLeod and Nita Clark, um, who set up an organisation called Engage for Success that has produced a lot of evidence around productivity in the workplace and the role that engagement can play in terms of improving that. Uh, and what they've shown quite comprehensively is that engagement drives productivity, but what makes that productivity, increased productivity and increased engagement sustainable is the well-being of the workforce. If you don't have, if you don't pay attention to well-being in your people, then what you get really quite quickly is burnout. People work at high intensity, they achieve more, but then after a relatively short period of time, they'll burn out and then their performance deteriorates. If you want to sustain high levels of productivity, high levels of engagement, you have to pay attention to well-being. And that well-being also uh, drives innovation uh, and collaboration, and many of us would argue is a worthwhile end in its own right. The evidence that um, emotional status, well-being, drives productivity um, is not as strong as one would like it. Now, this is a piece of work uh, produced by Andrew Oswald uh, at Warwick and colleagues at Warwick University fairly recently, uh, and it was a laboratory experiment looking at people's perceived happiness, perceived well-being, and their output against various tasks. And what the charts show, this one um, shows how groups that had been encouraged be, by being given rewards to be happy performed, not monetary rewards, um, performed around about 20% better on a range of tasks than those who weren't encouraged to be happy in that way. And it didn't make any difference uh, whether it was men or women. That was a fairly constant improvement in performance related to their emotional status, related to their state of happiness. What they did in parallel was to do uh, another cut of the data that looked at people who'd experienced a bad life event in the previous three years. And what they showed was that bad life event, which had an impact on their well-being, had a continuing impact on their performance over that period. And it diminished from year uh, one, two, to three. And at year three, they were back to uh, the same level as others. So in, on both levels, one sees that the way that people feel 
about their lives, the way they feel about themselves, their state of well-being, has a direct impact on their performance at work. And yet, as Danny Kahneman pointed out over 10 years ago now, we seem to spend an awful lot of time as organisations, both in the public and the private sector, apparently seeming to try and make our people miserable. Um, and I think it's a terrible indictment that, find it, that meeting your line manager is the least pleasant moment of the day, which is what Danny Kahneman found. Uh, and I've got a number of people that report to me. If I felt that that's how they perceived meeting with me, I'd be horrified, I'd be mortified. And yet, it's true in many parts of business. It's not necessary. It's the way that we're managing people, and it's not smart. Well-being has issues. Uh, it's got lots of advantages in that I think if I asked each of us here, did we have a sense of what well-being meant, we'd probably all say, yeah, I think I, think I get it. But then if we went into detail and started talking about exactly what does it mean for you, we'd all probably describe it in slightly different ways. And the words that are up on the screen there are the sorts of words that people use when they're seeking to describe uh, well-being. There is a well-being industry. It used to be a stress industry. Um, it has become a well-being industry. Um, and that industry, I think, complicates things. I'm not saying that what those folk do is bad at all, but peddling the concept that if you undertake my exercise program, uh, you eat my particular brand of blueberries, uh, you come for my particular form of health screening, um, you use my particular body lotion, uh, which maybe you don't get those adverts here, um, or that you undertake my particular sort of uh, mental relaxation techniques. That is the one silver bullet, the one answer that's going to improve your well-being. It's bordering on fraud because, of course, it's more complex than that. Uh, well-being is a multifactorial um, uh, outcome of those things. So um, I'm afraid that the industry doesn't help. So what do we mean by well-being? Uh, one of the first things David Cameron did in 2010 when he became Prime Minister in the UK was to ask the UK Office for National Statistics to do some work on well-being uh, to develop some measures that one could use in the country to track well-being uh, of the population over time. Uh, and as you can see from what's written uh, on the slide there, they came up with a definition of well-being which comes down to how we're doing as individuals. Life satisfaction, you can call it happiness if you like. Uh, it's a fairly simple concept uh, of the end point for well-being. But what they defined were ten dimensions that underpinned that. Things like the natural environment, personal well-being, relationships, health, what we do, where we live, personal finance, the economy, education, skills, and governance. Those are the ten things that contribute to people's sense of well-being. But of those ten dimensions, those ten domains, the one which influences behavior most is personal well-being. Some people call it 
subjective well-being. And that, therefore, is the one in a work context that we tend to focus on. The Office of National Statistics put that um, definition and those um, dimensions into a model, which is shown there as a wheel. Um, and these yellow ones are the four questions that go to uh, assess people's subjective or personal well-being. If I show that to my colleagues in the business, their eyes glaze over. It's a tad complex. It's great. It's very comprehensive. It's coherent. You can't fault the science, but it's a little bit difficult for ordinary folk to grasp. The OECD have produced, again, a well-researched, uh, evidence-based model of well-being that covers pretty much the same things, quality of life and material conditions, uh, and makes the point that if you want to sustain those, you need to look at the various forms of capital. But again, showing that to a line manager, an HR manager in a business, they go, I can't cope with that. It's too difficult. So what we've done is produce a much simpler model that most people we've found in business do get. And what it says is that well-being, how we're doing, is what we're aiming to achieve. Now, you can, I, I had a, an interesting discussion with uh, one of the permanent secretaries um, uh, of a civil service department in the UK last week uh, who was arguing that his political masters uh, at the moment uh, would not be terribly interested in driving well-being for its own sake. I think that's rather sad. Um, so what we agreed was that in making the argument, uh, you use well-being as an intermediary. So well-being as a way of improving productivity can work um, if people won't accept that well-being of itself is a, is a worthwhile end. So well-being is the end point, how we're doing. The things that drive that well-being are, yes, health, all aspects of health, physical, psychological, emotional, but also security. If you live in a very high-crime neighbourhood, your well-being is going to be impaired. And when you come to work, you're not suddenly going to get a big boost in your well-being. You're going to have impaired well-being at work. That's going to have an effect on what you do. Financial well-being, again, if you're teetering on um, uh, the precipice of being able to uh, afford the groceries at the end of the week, your well-being is going to be impaired, uh, and that's going to have an impact uh, on your work. Relationships, relationships at work, yes. Relationships with the family and the community are important. And then this one here uh, around purpose is important to us as human beings. Uh, as human beings, we need meaning in our lives. Uh, and we've all seen examples in the press or elsewhere uh, of um, people who seem to have everything in life in terms of material wealth but they don't have that sense of meaning in their lives, that sense of purpose. They go off the rolls and all, rails and all too often uh, uh, their lives end prematurely, prematurely. So when we talk about well-being, we're not just talking about health. We're also talking about these other things. And of course, health influences these other things and those other things influence health as well, as, well as having an impact on well-being. Now, um, 
as an organization, if you're going to approach anything, you need to have a strategy. Uh, and CIPD, which is the professional body for HR professionals um, in the UK, carried out a survey about a year ago now, um, asking uh, companies whether they had a strategy for well-being. And this is uh, uh, the response that they came up with. Um, and the different colored bars are simply different sectors within the economy. Uh, and as you can see at the bottom here, those that said, yes, we do have a well-being strategy, came to just under 10%, a relatively small proportion of companies. The great majority said one way or another, no, we don't have a coherent strategy for well-being. I particularly like this one. We don't have a formal strategy or a plan. We act flexibly on an ad hoc or individual basis according to employee need. That was clearly written by the media department, uh, the corporate relations department of that company, because what that says actually is, no, we haven't. Um, but it's wrapped up in corporate speak for those who aren't familiar with that particular language. Um, so a scattergun approach to well-being isn't a strategy. We need to have a framework uh, that we can work to if we're going to make a difference in this area. So what I'd like to talk about is what that sort of framework might look like. The one that we developed in BT um, has uh, two uh, intellectual components to it. One is based on uh, traditional safety behavioral change theory, and that's that you need to change people's attitudes and behaviors to safety if you want to see improved performance. Uh, and it's um, known as the Bradley curve uh, or the DuPont curve. Uh, and it's been demonstrated time after time in organizations. And what you do is you look to move people from a command and control mindset uh, where they do what they're told, at least most of the time, to one where they take responsibility for their own actions and then the highest state of development is when they take responsibility for their own actions and that of others. So to put that in a practical context, if I was walking down the stairs uh, with Gregor here uh, and I saw that his shoelace was undone, um, if I was in a dependent mentality mode, I would say, no one's told me I have to tell him anything about that. If I was on an independent mode, I would say, well, my shoelace isn't undone, I'm okay. But if I'm looking, thinking interdependently, I'm going to say, Greg, your shoelace is undone. You might fall over. Maybe you'd like to stop and do it up. So it's, it's not rocket science, um, but it's very effective in terms of improving safety performance. The other element comes from public health. Uh, a public health model says primary prevention is your first goal. If you can't achieve preventing illness in the first place, what you do is you intervene early to try and mitigate the effects of that illness. Uh, and then some people are going to get that illness. What you need to do uh, is help them to recover uh, and rehabilitate. So that's the model. And the aim over time is to move upstream. So instead of fixing stuff after it goes wrong, to prevent it happening uh, in the first place. So having a framework is fine. But where are we going to focus in terms of trying to improve well-being in the workplace. Now, the bad news um, is that most of, for all of us, most of what determines, what drives our well-being as adults is determined during our childhood. So things like genetics, parenting, 
schooling have a huge effect on how we turn out as adults and what our lifelong well-being is going to be like. But you don't have to abandon hope uh, because there's also good evidence that there are things that you can do as adults which also impact on your well-being. Uh, and what the regression table shows there uh, is a range of factors that the research has looked at uh, and the size of the bar gives you the, um, the importance of the different elements. And the big three that come out of that research are that employment, relationships, and emotional health are the things that really matter in terms of driving well-being in adulthood. So in terms of work, if we're going to take that uh, and we're going to say, okay, we want to construct a workplace that enhances people's well-being, what are the things that we're going to look at and try to do? What are the things that we're going to try and avoid? So income matters. Um, the evidence is consistent that uh, the less money you earn, the more important money is to you. So people at the lowest income levels are most bothered by, or most affected, their well-being is most affected by changes in income. As you move up the income scale, then it matters less and less. So giving somebody at the lowest level a small pay rise will have a much greater impact on their uh, sense of well-being than giving somebody at the top level a high pay rise. So there is that gradient according to the amount of money that you earn. But in terms of non-financial things, job security, opportunities for promotion, supportive co-workers, variety and autonomy in the work that you're doing are all positive effects. Whereas long hours, um, things that interfere with family life, time pressure, and dangerous working are all negative factors. So those are the things that one can look at to try and construct good work. There's a big but when it comes to income because what one might take from that is just pay everybody more um, and everybody's going to feel better. Um, unfortunately, perhaps, it's, or fortunately, depending on <laughs> where you are, um, it's not that easy because there's a thing called the Easterlin Paradox uh, Richard Easterlin is an American uh, economist uh, who did this work quite a long time ago now. Uh, it remains controversial uh, because a lot of people are not prepared to accept that giving people more money isn't necessarily going to improve their well-being. Uh, they believe that as an article of faith and it really doesn't matter what the evidence says, they're not going to change their minds and therefore they uh, try to find uh, holes in this work. But what it says is, as I said before, wealthier people tend to be happier. The paradox is that if you increase income, it doesn't seem to increase happiness. And why is that? The reason for that is that it's the comparison of your income with other people's income that matters, and also people adapt. Now, this data is taken from the UK, Germany, and Australia. Um, various um, data sets, but the results are fairly consistent, perhaps a little bit uh, in terms of adaptation, a bit different in Australia for reasons I don't quite understand. Um, but in general, what you see is that the positive effect of increasing somebody's income is balanced almost equally 
by the negative effect of other people getting an increase too. So if you only, in this room, if I was the only person getting a pay increase, my well-being would go up. If you all got a pay increase too, I'm afraid it wouldn't. That's the paradox. The other one is adaptation, uh, that uh, you give people a rise, you get an increase in, uh, uh, you get an increase in their well-being, um, but actually they adapt to that, so it depends on what their past income is. So it's not as simple as saying just pay everybody more. Job design uh, is critical, uh, and as I said before, that's what the evidence shows. There are various uh, bits of research that support what you should do to create good work. Um, Hackman and Oldham's work now has been around for 25, 30 years. Um, their job characteristics model uh, is well-researched, well-validated. And what that says is there are some core dimensions, things about the type of work, the type of tasks that you get people to do uh, that will increase their sense of well-being. Uh, there are also some psychological states, how meaningful that work is, um, responsibility for outcomes, uh, and then the outcomes themselves, motivation, job satisfaction, and the quality of work that all impact uh, on their perception of good work and bolstering their well-being. That's very similar to the management standards that the UK Health and Safety Executive produced about 10 years ago, which shows the things that you need to pay attention to if you're not going to harm people's well-being uh, and mental health. And that's demands you place on people, the amount of control that you give them, the support that you give them in the workplace, relationships within the workplace, particularly with their line manager, clarity of role, um, and change. Change being a particularly strong driver um, of impaired well-being. So, what one's seeking to do is to promote good work and to avoid harm. How practically can one take that forward and start to implement good work in the workplace? And one of the things that we um, did in the telecommunications industry uh, at a European level uh, before uh, my countrymen and women decided that they weren't Europeans, um, then I don't understand it either. Um, but uh, what we did was produce um, an action grid that just helps you to work out what you need to do practically uh, to improve uh, health and well-being in the workplace. And the idea, I beg your pardon, uh, the idea is that you take the subject well-being you take those three levels that you'll remember, primary, secondary, tertiary, think about those elements around the um, atom, uh, the electrons around the um, positron or whatever it is. My, my physics, I'm afraid, is sadly lacking. Um, look at those and think about the things that you're already doing in the workplace because most organizations will be doing some of these things. They might do something around exercise in the workplace. They might do something around mindfulness. Um, they almost certainly uh, will provide sick pay and some sort of um, financial security for people. They will be doing things around safety, maybe not just at work, but also when people are out on the roads. 
Uh, and there'll be a whole host of things around purpose that they do, uh, like volunteering, uh, and then relationships, things like works councils, sports teams. So there's a lot that all organisations are doing. And if you populate those boxes, then what you find is that you've got the start of creating a strategy, because what it will do for you is reveal where you've got gaps. Uh, and as I was saying to an audience earlier on today, the other best thing about it is that managers love nine box grids. Um, so um, if you have something which is un, uh, a two by two, it's too simple. A four by four is too complicated. Uh, if you have a two by four or any uneven number, it just looks awkward. Um, in my experience, in 40 years, the one thing that I can guarantee a manager will go for, it's a nine box grid. So give them a nine box grid. Uh, yeah, yeah. One thing to take away from today, use nine box grids. Well-being is a whole person experience. So uh, we spoke about those elements of security, relationships, and purpose. Security isn't just physical security, as I said, or emotional security. It's also financial security. One of the things that horrified me earlier in the year uh, when uh, the Social uh, Market Foundation in the UK published some research looking at levels of debt and financial security in employees in the UK is that almost two-thirds of employees in the UK in this survey borrow on a regular basis to meet ordinary daily needs, paying the bills at the end of the month. Two-thirds of people. Uh, I think that's scary. Even scarier, a third use credit cards to meet those bills. Credit cards in the UK, typically 20-odd percent APR interest rates. I'm told it's not too dissimilar here. The bit that really frightens me is that 8% are using payday loans. Payday loans, typically in the UK, 1,500 to 2,000% APR. Uh, you rapidly get into uh, financial difficulties with that. Now, what can employers do about that? Well, one of the things that we're doing as an employer uh, is that we are setting up a scheme that allows our employees to consolidate their loans. Uh, and because the company backs uh, the scheme, uh, they can get the loan at a 7% interest rate. Now, 7% compared to 1,500 or 2,000% or even 20% um, is a lot better. So employers who want to uh, can engage in this way to help their uh, employees on that element of financial security. Relationships. When you look at when relationships, marriages break down, the peak is in that 40 to 45 age group. Who in your workforce are 40 to 45? They tend to be your key people. They're often your middle managers. They're the people who are going to be your senior managers. They're the people with the experience that you really rely upon. And yet those are the people most at risk of having impaired well-being as a result of relationships. You can ignore that as an employer, or you can say, OK, we're going to make sure that as part of our general offering, we can signpost people to support services, or we can provide support services, or we can engage with voluntary organizations like Relate in the UK that help with relationship counseling. But we will help them through that difficult period in their lives. And then in terms of purpose, volunteering, some people get their purpose in life out of their work. 
Uh, an awful lot of people don't get their purpose in life out of work. They get their purpose in life out of other things, things that they do on a voluntary basis. If, as an employer, you can support that, you can give people the time to go and do the things that are meaningful for them, you can perhaps back that up with low-cost things that will facilitate um, them doing that work with voluntary organizations, uh, then you can improve the well-being of your people quite significantly. All those types of things are important, but let's not forget health, because health remains important, even though it's not dominant. And as I said at the beginning, mental health is what is dominating our modern world of work. And there are various ways of thinking about mental health, uh, but one way to think about it is that there are predisposing factors, um, things about you innately in you, um, genetics, the way that you're brought up, that will determine whether you are more or less likely to suffer mental health problems later in life. There are precipitating events, things like bereavement, uh, relationship breakdown, job loss, um, that can precipitate an acute episode. And then there are perpetuating factors, things that will um, prevent you from recovering properly uh, and make your symptoms carry on being worse. So employers can play a part in that. One of the things that one often hears is, um, well, I can see that when the work is causing the problem, but if it's not the work that's causing the problem, it's not right for me as an employer to interfere in people's personal lives. That's, I think, old-fashioned thinking, uh, partly because there's often crossover. There's often also a perception, even though it isn't the work, people feel that the work is an important contribution. You have to respond to that uh, perception. Um, and whether or not it's caused by work, it's going to impact on work. And that's shown here in this graph. This is our sickness absence rate in BT uh, over a roughly five or six year period, the big hump is the financial crisis, which was brutal in Europe. Um, and this is mental health absence. In, in the UK and Ireland, uh, you can actually break down causes of absence, which you can't do here and you can't do in most other civilized countries. Uh, but in, in the UK and Ireland, whether they're civilized countries, I couldn't possibly comment. Uh, but you, you can record uh, the, the reasons for absence. So you can see that because of the recession, so not particularly things that were going on in our company, but because of other events, the rate of mental health absence went up by roughly 50%. So we could ignore that and say we haven't caused the recession. Um, it's not down to us as a company. Or, as we did do, we can respond to it. We put in extra resources to support people's well-being at that time. What really pleased me, because well-being is sometimes seen as being pink and fluffy. It isn't. Uh, it's a business imperative. Uh, when I went to our PLC board, our main board, uh, the company employs about 100,000 people. Um, so when I went to these uh, people, most of whom are hard-nosed financial folk, um, I was expecting them to say, that pink and fluffy stuff, Paul, we can't afford that anymore. Uh, they didn't say that at all. What they actually said was, are we doing enough? Have you got enough resources to do what we need to do to support our people through these difficult times? Because they're nice people, maybe, 
Uh, or maybe it's because they were bright enough to see that if you support people through those difficult times, they're actually going to be in a much better place to help you when the recovery comes and make you um, a, a successful business. And whether it's coincidence or not, I don't know. But at that time, the share price was around about 70p. Um, having got people through the crisis by here, it was over £3. Um, so there were real business benefits uh, to doing what we did. That, that's Munk, by the way. Many of you will be familiar with the, the scream. Uh, uh, that is one that depicts depression. And if you've ever had depression, uh, you might well feel that it's, it's quite meaningful. So having got the action grid, what it's good to then create, if you've got the resources to do it, is practical toolkits, because that, again, is what's useful to line managers. I'm not going to go through this in detail, but if anybody wants to ask me about anything afterwards, we'll have a few minutes. Uh, I'll happily talk about it. But what we've done is we've tried to, in this area of um, mental health, uh, what we've tried to do is produce a range of products and services that underpin promoting good health, that support mental health when it's at risk, uh, and then if people have developed frank mental illness, uh, that we have things there which help them. And I'll just pick out two. So managing mental health is a course that we uh, created a number of years ago now, um, which is a one-day face-to-face course for line managers. It explains to managers what the signs of distress are, what to look out for when people are starting to go downhill, what they can do as fellow human beings uh, to help, and that's often what you should say and what you shouldn't say, and how then to signpost on to additional sources of help. It's been enor enormously popular. It's a voluntary course. We've had over 8,000 managers go through that course now, um, and it's had real results in terms, of in, uh, in terms of improving the health of our people. Uh, the only other one I will uh, highlight now is a thing we call our health and well-being passport, that's where people have got uh, potentially recurrent conditions. Uh, they know from their past experience that they're likely to or they could have uh, a further breakdown at some point in the future, an indeterminate point. What it does is it allows them to say, when things are starting to go wrong, what is it that works for me as an individual? What do I need to support me? Who is there? What resources out there do I know are going to be helpful to me? And it gives the line, they then have an agreed plan with their line manager about what they will do. And it might be things like, I, I need to scale down my work. So instead of doing 37 hours a week, uh, I scale down for a period to 20 hours a week. It's all those sorts of practical things that you can do. Uh, individuals like it, employees like it, uh, because it gives them, if you like, something tangible to show that if things do go wrong, the company's going to support them. Line managers like it because the thing managers like least is uncertainty. This gives them a plan of what to do when something which is potentially quite scary for a manager, somebody dealing with somebody who's developing a mental health problem, something really quite scary, it gives them something tangible to hang on to. One needs to make resources accessible. This is a screenshot from uh, our intranet, our health and wellbeing intranet. What we aim to do all the time is to normalize um, these issues. So normalize things like mental health. So apart from the fat bloke there, 
the other um, the other people there, these are all podcasts that you can just link on uh, and get a quick three to five minute video talking about different aspects uh, of, in this case, uh, of health and well-being. So that's the group HR director. That's the chief executive of the global division. That's the finance director. Uh, that's the chief executive of the engineering division. Uh, and that's our in-house psychologist. So the whole idea is to get a range of people, most whom are not medical, to talk about this stuff. People are quite sophisticated these days. Uh, we're brought up with really slick advertising. If we produce um, materials that look like they've been created by a seven-year-old, uh, then other than having that perhaps naive charm, uh, if it's your own child or grandchild of seven years, um, it doesn't work. Uh, so, investing a little bit of time and effort in making things look attractive pays huge dividends. And one of the things that we did um, is come up with a brand for what we do around health and well-being called WorkFit. It's deliberately not BT WorkFit because it's a jointly owned brand with our trades unions. And we did that deliberately to try and dispel some of the fears around this area and to increase uh, participation by our people. Um, and then introducing things that are quite fun, that people want to engage in, that will help to boost their well-being. It needs to, the organizational aspects need to be embedded in the business. If you have well-being modules on the side, then people might do them out of interest, but it's not going to become part of the way that you work in the company, an intrinsic part of the way that you do business. So what we've done uh, is we have taken uh, our well-being training and incorporated it into our management training, not as a separate module, but woven through how we train our managers to manage people. Uh, and that's done at different levels. And it sits not in some well-being part of our intranet, but on the key leadership hub with, that's our chief executive, um, explaining the importance of all of this stuff, which is around leadership, but within that is built the well-being stuff. What you do, what we do at work, of course, has an impact on our workforce. But it's more than that, because people go home, they talk to their friends, they talk to their families, the way that their well-being is driven by what they're doing at work has an impact on their friends and their families. In turn, that has an impact on their communities. In turn, that has an impact on society. So what we do in the workplace is part of being good corporate citizens. And what one can do then, uh, and th I'm sorry about the diagram, it's produced by uh, Public Health England and Business in the Community, which is a business organization in the UK. Uh, I don't think it's visually terribly attractive, um, but I didn't create it. Um, but what it aims to show is that what you do as a business can influence what government is trying to do as a society. So there are synergies there that working within the business environment, you can do things that will have an impact on society. And what the state does in terms of trying to improve well-being has an impact on businesses. So there's mutual benefit from embracing this agenda. There are some potential issues about priorities in that priorities for business may be different 
to the priorities for the state. But nevertheless, the principle is that you can be mutually supportive. And that plays very well uh, with government. So what that allows you to do as a business is to make well-being your framework for social responsibility. So those four elements of health, security, relationships, and purpose are all feeding into the way that you engage with society. Uh, and I would add to that environment, because what we do as companies, uh, our the impact we have on the environment is clearly uh, critical. I'm half Irish. Um, there is um, a blessing uh, or a toast, because it's hard in uh, the Scottish and Irish cultures to differentiate between toasts and blessings. Um, but there is a, a blessing or a toast that says, may you have health, wealth, and happiness. And I would suggest that by embracing the well-being agenda, then businesses can create health, wealth, and happiness, not just for their workforce, but also for their customers, and also for the wider community. So what you end up with is something which is, yes, good for business, good for employees, good for shareholders, because you're avoiding that bad work, you're um, promoting good work, you're promoting good well-being, you're avoiding bad well-being. You avoid all those harmful things for your business, those harmful things for society, you're maximizing your benefits from those good things that you're trying to achieve as a business, and it's good for society. Thank you. To stay up to date with the latest cutting-edge research from Victoria University of Wellington, subscribe now through iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast provider. Thanks to Tekoki New Zealand School of Music alumni Kenyon Shanky and Stephen Patton for the use of their music. Victoria University of Wellington. Capital thinking, globally minded.